And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the recently reopened Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest, writer, editor, and poet, Cherie Renee Thomas on the Coot Street Podcast! And welcome, Cherie, and congratulations on, on your, what, World Fantasy and Locus Award nominations for Nine Bar Blues, and for about a year now, uh, editing the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. Is that about right? Yes, thank you. Also, Ignite Award. Um, that Ignite. Was, yes, Ignite Award. Yes, yes. Yeah, so that was, that was awesome. Yeah, I had a great time at FireCon. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yes, is, is life treating you well? Is everything sort of stable in, in, in these, these crazy times for you? It's not stable, but life is treating me well. <laughs> I actually thought this fall I would be... Um, not necessarily resting because I knew I was still doing the magazine, but I thought I would just be able to mentally at least rest. Uh-huh. Um, and 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 uh, and I, I I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I actually don't know when I will be able to rest because um, I was you know thinking I could recover from this amazingly wonderful year full of. Um, fun things. And, and not just for me, but for people I know and admire and people I love have had some really um, wonderful things happen for them. And I just thought that it would be a quieter year for me next year. But um, <laughs> this fall has, you know, has not let up and that's good. I, I will just say for listeners who are not just wonderful readers and supporters of our fine genre, but if you are practitioners and or aspiring writers, um, we'll say just be careful what you wish for <laughs> in a good way. When you, when you really, really work hard or, or you have your bucket list or your things that you want to do with your career and your life, just make sure that you are mentally and spiritually ready for all the doors to open up. And sometimes at once. I was going to say that that raises a question about, about is this something you wanted to do? Because you first came to my attention, well, more than twenty years ago, I now I, I guess with Dark Matter, uh, and which which is now a historic anthology, and we want to talk about that a little bit later. So, so you were an editor then, and and now you're an editor of one of the quote big three historic magazines in the field. Was that always an ambition of yours? You know what? It was not an ambition of mine, but it was always a part of um, I guess my 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 background because as a child I would go to the Kroger. Um, here in, in, in Tennessee and Memphis. And of course you see FNSF or you would see it, you know, with all the other magazines in some of the stores. Yeah, and I remember world. actually pleading with my mom to, you know, get me my own, you know, buy this issue for me because I don't know, remember something was on the cover that I love. I, I love yeah. the art and she bought it for me. Um, but she was already a reader of Omni magazine. Um, family loved uh, science fiction and fantasy. We really love horror in particular. It's a, like a family tradition to watch scary movies and stuff. <laughs> so, um, so I always knew about it, the magazine, you know, as a young person. Um, yeah, but never ever really thought about editing it um, for sure. That was not like some things are not a part of your bucket list because you can see it. Was there a point at which, because I'm, I'm curious because I think uh, about this myself too, was there a point at which you realized that somebody edited this magazine, that somebody put all these stories together and they didn't just magically appear? Oh, I knew that. I mean, I've been, think about it. I've been reading um, 
old copies of anthologies and stuff and um, old science fiction um, books and things forever. So I'm a part of the audience. I guess I would say like the visible audience that you would have never seen at a conference. Like my family wouldn't have been in a author's line to get books signed. It's just they're, you know, working, working class people, not necessarily going on vacation to go to science fiction conventions and stuff. But um, so I knew about that and, and knew enough to, to, to get myself to New York City to, to work in book publishing. So I'm not I wasn't a novice in that regard or anything. It was um, but I didn't anticipate meeting someone who edited the magazine. And of course, I got a chance to meet Gordon in 1999 at Clarion West when I was a student there. Yeah. So that was a very long time ago. Um, so when did but you by first then, start? I had already mm -hmm. met some other great editors that I really admire. Yeah. Ellen Datlow, I met um, Gardner and others. So yeah. When, when did you first uh, start telling your own stories? Because I mean, from what I've seen, you, you know, you're, and you've mentioned it today, that you started off with family that read a lot of horror, that looked at what watched a lot of horror movies. There was science fiction, fantasy horror in in your family background that was part of your growing up. When did mm -hmm. it start becoming something that you were going to do? Because your first stories appear, what, early 2000s, maybe. So at, no, at what point did- No, my first stories in the genre appear at that time. Yeah. I've okay, been yeah, publishing yeah. before that. And so that's another thing. I'm a person who was in a, a couple of genres. I um, mm. was in, I guess you would say, like, you know, a part of the literary community, you yeah. know, publishing yeah. in literary journals that, you know, publish actually- quite a fair amount of speculative fiction, but it's not necessarily going to be on the year's best reading list. Like you're not going to yeah. be looking for it unless you know. Um, and then I was also a part of black writing communities um, and poetry communities, Kave Kanum yeah. um, as well. I've uh, been a part of um, Author Flowers, uh, uh, New Renaissance Writers Guild and other groups. So I wore a number of hats and my communities overlapped in some places, if that makes sense. Um, sure. So, like, it was, took me so long to even get a sense of what happens in the, in the science fiction community in terms of, like, announcing that your stories were published so that people can go out and read them and, and nominate mm -hmm. them. I mean, I had been published, I don't know, years before I even did that. Like, I would yeah. never have even, like, I missed the, the chance to say, hey, this is my first, first publication in the science fiction genre in an mm -hmm. SWA-honored you know, recognized yeah, yeah, yeah. market because I had been publishing for years already and it just never was a, a thing that I was aware of to do. So um, I think of myself in that regard as a late boomer. <laughs> do, do you feel like there's a point where having spent that time in, in the literary genre and whatever else, where you felt yourself turning back to science fiction, as it were, or moving towards science fiction? Because, I mean, obviously you've moved, at one point you moved to New York, you're working in science fiction publishing or in publishing generally. And then, I, you know, from what I've seen, you worked on, was it a Nancy fiction of the African diaspora before you do Dark Matter? So is there a point mm -hmm. where, you, is, is there something that moves you back to it, particularly to work in that? Or is it just a natural I was evolution? never out of it. I just wasn't in your view, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, no, don't. You go back and find my fifth grade teachers or anyone that taught me at any point where they had to get writing from me. They will tell you I was already writing speculative fiction then. Um, any assignment that I could make it be, that's what I would do. I remember rewriting The Telltale Heart and setting it in Memphis um, with a candy lady as the, sure. as the you know, the the poor character that gets murdered in it um, or what have you. Um, I've, you know, I've, I think my first actual publication outside of um, high school writing competitions and stuff um, was in college when I published mm -hmm. 
a nonfiction piece actually on um, the National Civil Rights Museum that had just been opened up. And there was a protester out there who's still out there, by the way, um, who felt like the museum did not represent the true community activism spirit of Dr. Sure. King and his Poor People's Campaign. Um, and um, and they, they wanted it to be more... Uh, more more in line with that, his last work. And so I interviewed them and that was one of my first publications um, as well. Um, so, but in terms of the fiction, I never really wrote anything else but speculative fiction. <laughs> um, I just, one, it didn't occur to me to send it to the magazines because yeah. it was a situation where, and I only found out about it later when I was, um, when I met Kelly Link and others, and I was reading about her work because I really loved her stories, was that it's a sense that it's too literary for some magazine, you know, for, for genre magazines and yeah. too, you know, science fiction or too, you know, speculative sure. for more traditional magazines. So, you know. It's, it's, it's been an interesting issue because um, I, I'm, I'm guessing that you haven't had much connection with creative writing programs or MFA programs and that sort of thing. Um, I've taught in them. <laughs> well, teaching yeah, in them I've is a different them. matter altogether. Because yeah. this comes up. I am not, like, I don't fit comfortably in, I guess, whatever the traditional box is. I'm the one of the people. And there are mm -hmm. lots of people like that, I guess. Pools, their, their, their experience is not the traditional one, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Um, um, yeah, I, I was writing recommendations for people's um Doctoral, doctoral programs, and I didn't have any PhD. So I was recommending people <laughs> for programs. I remember being asked to come and work with graduate students at SUNY Binghamton um, at cool. the time and talk with graduate students there who had been discouraged for writing um, speculative fiction as part of their, their thesis because, well, uh, you know, for whatever reason, at that particular particular time, yeah, they, that's they had been there late, earlier in the 70s, they would have had a great time, <laughs> you know, because there's a community of, of science fiction writers there, right? But later, that wasn't necessarily the thing. Um, so I've been in a few, I've been in low-res programs as well, um, teaching. Um, I taught with, uh, with Dallas, with Jack Ketchum um, um, before. So, yeah, and, you know, so I've had that experience. I've also been to Brett Loaf Environmental. I've been to the Malay Colony. So I've done lots of different writerly things um, inside well, and, and around the genre. <laughs> yeah, I, the re reason I mention that is because it's a, it's a story we hear about a lot of writers, and it changes generation by generation. Where if you go to a prestigious workshop like, like Iowa, uh, for example, where Joe Haldeman went 50 years ago, I guess. And they just thought he was completely odd. They didn't know what yeah. to do with him at all. But then 50 years later, I talked to uh, Carmen Maria Machado, who went to Iowa, and they say that what you're doing is fine. Go ahead and do it. So yeah, things change. It's a new day. In fact, there are, I was reading um, submissions for the Under the Volcano um, workshop, which they're having, they have a special Imagination Unbound fellowship for writers of speculative fiction or, you know, writers who are pushing mm -hmm. those kind of genre boundaries. And I read one of the cover letters and they are, you know, a couple of people were from the Iowa Writers Workshop. And in fact, one of them had taught, you know, um, um, speculative fiction, you know, for the university. So there is not only um, support for um, this body of work that's been around for a long, long time, but also now they have funded, it looks like they're funding positions for people to teach it. And to um, support writers, that and that's very exciting to know to know that. So, 
but yeah. Well, one of the things I think has changed also in terms of editing magazines, you mentioned the literary magazines, which shied away from science fiction. And that's begun mm -hmm. to change, too. Like mm -hmm. Bard College publishes uh, Conjunctions, which now features a lot of science fiction and fantasy, uh, which they started doing probably 15 or 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So now it's more acceptable. Do you feel as an editor of FNSF that you're now competing a little bit with literary magazines as well with other science fiction magazines? I think that... Um for a print magazine, we're competing with everything. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> for the attention of everything. You know? um, but it is good to see um, that the walls that aren't, by the way, aren't really recognized in the theater community, right? Um, no. To come down so that people can just read good work. They can just read it and enjoy it and, and, and keep flowing. And I think also part of it is the fact that um, the time that we're living in, and maybe that's every generation feels this way, but we it, it seems like not only has our technology caught up with us in the sense that some of the wonderful work from the past can now be adapted very beautifully um, and, and and honor the original work on the on the page on the screen people are drawn to certain kinds of stories and they're um, other mediums, film, you know, streaming uh, platforms and movies and things like that are right. seeing that people love science fiction. And there are so many different things that you can do in the genre that, you know, writers have known all along, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it never needed to be parsed out. You don't need to pull out Ursula Le Guin's work or um, George yeah. Orwell's and say, this is literature with a capital L, you know, um, when it's just straight science fiction or fantasy, right? As, you know, um, story is story. So I think seeing the audience's acceptance of so many great films and not treating it as disposable has right. encouraged those who are educators to also reach to this work in different ways than they might have done so in the past. And, and, this, and then younger generations, they don't really have the same hangups about it, yeah. you know. Um, they're looking for the right tools to tell the stories that they want to yeah. tell. And yeah. I have to say, of course, our genre offers a lot of tools, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I first became of your work when I was on the World Fantasy Awards jury back in 2001 when I read uh, Dark Matter. And I, I wonder, what was the origin of that book for you? And to what extent was it a, a tool fit for purpose? I tend to think that you know there are lots of things that anthologies do, and books like Dark Matter look as though they're intended to do something. So what were okay. the origins of the book and what was on your mind? All right. So the first origin of it is I was a reader who was looking for more of the work that was in Dark Matter. Um, I was um, working in one of the big fives and the genre I worked in was uh, women's fiction and romance, you know, but I also sure. did multicultural stuff. And of course, at that time, you know, we we're pay pennies maybe they're still pay pennies but we weren't really paid a lot and you're living in new york it's it was very crazy so we most of the young people had multiple jobs so you were not only just doing you know doing your editorial work or assisting or whatever it is whether you're a public you know in the publicity department or subsidiary rights or whatever but you if you had any good sense you were copy editing if you had any good sense you were writing jacket copy mm -hmm. you were you know doing cold reading and proofreading when that was a, a you know a main thing to have you know um, yeah. when editors were not only most of the editors could 
you know, actually do all the editing themselves, but also had, you know, the co-readers and all, you know, you went through all the stages of, of publication where there's having someone who acquires the work and then right. they farm it out to freelance. So I, we didn't really have a lot of freelancers editing. Um, most yeah. of everything was done um, in-house um, yeah. for that, in that regard. And so what I have always been reading for fun, especially um, during my college years, was science fiction. And I had already read, um, I think everything that uh, everything that Octavia had published at that point, everything that Chip had already published, um, I read as much as I could of that. Um, Stephen Barnes, I just mm-hmm. started reading Tanana Du, who had published maybe one novel at that point. Um, yeah, the between. Michelle Nichols had a novel out. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lavar Burton, like I was looking for the work. And I went to a uh, a local barn, my uh, local Barnes and Noble um, near my uh, my home, and I just thought, oh, I'll find an anthology, you know, because you know, I just figured there's all kinds of science fiction anthologies, and we could not, yeah. me and the, the sales associate at the time, could not find an anthology that had all science fiction and fantasy by black writers. And they thought it existed. We both thought it existed. We just assumed, but from what we could tell, it didn't. And I went home instead with a collection of um, Japanese science fiction that had been translated by Martin Greenberg. Mm-hmm. And I read some of the stories and went to bed and woke up pretty early, like three o'clock in the morning with this like burning question, does this really not exist and why? <laughs> why wouldn't it exist? Even if I only knew two black writers in the world, which you really could have, I could have gone and picked up some work by Ben O'Cree or, you know, some other, you know, other um, writers. Um, but if I only knew Samuel R. Delaney and Octavia E. Butler, you know, could I not put together an anthology of those sure. works? Um, or and with Charles R. Saunders or Hanan hmm. Du or Stephen Barnes or whoever was that third wheel, Jewel Gomez, you know, Wanda uh, Coleman, it, uh, Henry Dumas, any number of other people, could you not, could you not put it together? And I start thinking about it. So it began, Dark Matter began initially as a reader's, um, you know, quest to find new, you know, cool stuff to read. And then it became a a research question. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Schomburg Center for Research of Black Culture Ah, in Harlem. So that's that's, that's where the (laughs) the historical material, that's the, so that's where the Du Bois and the chestnut and those things come from because well actually the boys came to off my shelf because he was oh, on really? the shelf already. Okay, cool. <laughs> like, right. the collection was already on my shelf and i started pulling things before i went to the schumburg i started pulling things out of my own personal library like if you go back and look at the new york times photo i think there's one of the photos that they had done with right before the book came out and my office at that time in new york had like a zillion books all i had to do was pull from my shelf all the speculative fiction from black writers that I knew that I had encountered in my whole little short life. Um, I think I was in my twenties then late, um, late twenties um, and put it in a pile and say, boom, boom, boom. Uh, du Bois's work was classic science fiction. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I was surprised. <laughs> that was the easy one. Some other ones I was like, ah, you know, maybe slipstream. I don't know what term we were using then. Um, but you know, I could maybe make an argument for that, perhaps. Other stuff was like, yeah, this is this is definitely straight, you know, speculative fiction. And and then I just started creating different lists. If I could throw my wand around and say, yeah, I will get this work, then who would be in a book like that? Yeah. Again, sure. trying to create a collection for the reader that I was, 
looking for a body of work that I knew existed, but wasn't compiled in the way that I felt like it needed to be in the world. So that's how it started. So you go through and you compile this body of work that you either knew or felt must exist. How, how was the reception at the time for it? Because I mean, you know, there was, it obviously did well enough that you got to do a second book. It won the World Fantasy Award and the, the follow-up won the World Fantasy Award. So it got some reception. Was it the kind of reception you had expected or hoped for? I mean, I don't really know because think about it. The time then, and you've definitely been in the industry longer than I have, this was before social media, right? So yeah. I don't really, I didn't have my finger on the pulse of what fandom looked like or what it was or you know, you know, I had my colleagues at Random House. I had, you know, some colleagues in other press, you know, other places. And um, I had these disparate communities, the poets over here, the playwrights over there, the, you know, those kind mm -hmm. of people. Um, but I didn't get a sense of, I don't even know. At that time, I, I subscribed to Locust um, right around the time that I knew that the book was going to come out. I wasn't subscribed yeah. to Locust before, so I wasn't uh -huh. put into that industry. Um and I actually, I don't know if this is like, if you're supposed to tell people that you can edit this out if you're not, but I actually had thought about pitching it to in-house, but then yeah. I remember like our meetings, I already knew some of the editors there. I knew the types of conversations we would have in our editorial meetings. I was like, they wouldn't get it. So I didn't pitch it. Uh -huh. um, I was so fortunate that um, uh, Marie Dutton Brown, um, the agent Marie Dutton Brown understood what I was trying to do and believed in the project and was willing to represent it. And um, I had good friends in different places, right? So I had a friend and um, at WBAI, because um, I'd been through there for, I think for some kind of hip hop um, something. I don't know what I was there for, but mm. I've been there for a hip hop conversation or, or to be a part of a, a panel or something. And I don't even know if I had met Jim Fornett yet at that point. But Mark, Mike Sargent was the person when I called just to check and see how he was doing or see what was going on. He said, hey, I hear you're trying to do a book of black science fiction. I was like, yeah. He's like, well, you know where you need to be right now? I said, no, tell me. <laughs> and he's like, you need to be at the Beacon Theater because Jonathan Lethem, Walter Mosley and Octavia Butler are reading right. Get to read tonight. And I was like, wow. are you kidding me? And he was like, nope. And guess where I was? <laughs> um, I think that was 10 blocks from my house. So I was there with bells on and my my little you know proposal, in, you know, together, my little bag that didn't have a name. It was uh, untitled Black Sci-Fi Anthology. Mm -hmm. And I was pitching it to Walter Mosley and Walter had this strange look on his face. <laughs> Or no, Walter was fine. I think it was his editor at Norton was looking real strange. I don't know what it was going on. And I was like, ah, oh, he's not he's not really feeling it. <laughs> is, he, is, he, is he barely feeling what Walter's doing in terms of science fiction? Because Walter wasn't writing mysteries at that time. He was yeah. writing science, he was starting to do his science fiction. Right. And um while I was pitching it to them, uh, Betsy Mitchell approached me. Um she was at Warner Aspect at the time, and she's like, you know. I know what you're trying to do and I get it. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes. And then of course I spoke with Octavia, which I'd already had talked with her right. at an, um, another bookstore in, uh, in uh, on the Upper West Side um, at the time. And she was always supportive. So she, in fact, she let me know in a, it, she let me know that this was something that was meant to be because she already had the essay that she wanted me to reprint in it. And she said that she was going to give me permission to, you know, to, to publish, you know, reprint whatever story I wanted to publish. And she told me 
that she that in the I don't know if it was the 70s or early 80s, she and Martin Greenberg had tried to do a collection of um, black speculative fiction together, but they had been told that no one would want to read a book about race. Oh. Um, so they didn't. Do oh, really? It. That, that, so, sounds like, that sounds like a, a lot like the story that Chip Delaney tells of being told by John W. Campbell that his readers didn't want to read stories with black protagonists, and therefore you're yeah. not going to get into analog. Betsy, I think, has been a good advocate because it must have been a couple of years before that I was at a uh, what they used to call the ABA, which then became Book Expo and then became nothing at all. And she, I was at the Warner booth and she came up and she showed me this novel called Brown Girl in the Ring and said, you've got to read this writer. And I did. And that was my first encounter with Nalo. So, so yeah, Betsy had been a good advocate for, for uh, quite a while, even before that, I think. Oh, yeah. I had uh, reviewed Brown Girl in the Ring for Black Issues Book Review and QBR, another um, uh, uh, Black Review magazine. Um, so yeah, I was really excited about Nalo. I knew things were going to be, I knew something different was happening when I saw that she had won the contest. Yeah. yeah. If you cut, just to, at the risk of skipping forward a lot, you, you had a Dark Matter and then Dark Matter reading The Bones in, in the early 2000s, and there, an attempt, if not to redress something, to at least to sort of go, there is this population of black speculative fiction writers that everyone should be paying attention to, and here they are. And then 16 years passes, and you find yourself where you are now, and you're editing new anthologies and new uh, uh, mag issues of magazines. Do you feel during your career as an editor, the awareness and engagement with black science fiction has changed? Um, it has somewhat. We're still having some of the same conversations and the same battles obviously, but um, it definitely has in the sense that, I mean, I would dare someone to say that no one writes um, science fiction that's, that's, that's black. Um, and I would dare someone to, to discuss it without speaking of people from the actual continent of Africa or the Caribbean or, you know, Canada or other places sure. in the world. So even the conversation that we were having in the early 90s uh, or the mid 90s, because remember, I, I was a part of the Afrofuturism.net right. list before sure. I even conceived of dark matter um conceived it in 98 sold it in 99 published it in 2000 hardcover paperback in 2001 follow-up 2004 2005 reception yeah. was you know we got wonderful you know celebration of awards i don't know what readers were thinking though um there was yeah. no good reads there was you know um you know it was in the new york times twice and that etc but in terms of what actual readers that the outside of when we were doing readings and stuff, I wouldn't, I couldn't tell you. How would I know? Um, mm. um, and I also would say, and I'm not going to like sugarcoat it. I don't think it was necessarily something that people understood immediately. Like people, yeah. I, you know, I got a sense, especially being at some of the cons that people weren't quite clear, you know, why it was necessary in the first place. Um, um, I think they probably understand that better now, but definitely it was not that kind of community um, sure. there, there, there was a sense because it, it, it created a lot of discussion at Locus. I had a lot of discussions with Charles Brown about reviewing it, and he was excited. And what he was saying was that there had been, for example, Pamela Sargent doing collections of women's science fiction, which seemed like a radical idea when she was doing it 10 years before you did. Mm -hmm. um, and then Jack Dan did a couple of anthologies of Jewish science fiction. And now, and now we're getting African science fiction and Korean science fiction and South Asian science fiction and so mm -hmm. forth. So it doesn't seem to be quite as uh, anomalous as it did when you 
on the they other hand, they weren't doing it. They weren't doing Mexican science fiction. Like two exactly. Mexican science fiction anthologies came out right after Dark Matter. I mean, I know the footprint that it created in the world. There was never a question. Locus never even interviewed me though. The entire twenty years, no, I never yeah. got a single interview. Um, the people that we I, that are introduced in the collection. Um, they went on to do quite well, but there was never a conversation about how you found out about some of those writers in the first place. Yeah. Um, um, Linda and I always laugh about this. Linda had been publishing in science fiction for many, many years, um, had actually met Isaac Asimov in person at a bar or something and, and talk and joke with him. And you have to ask her about her elevators. I'm not sure I want to. Yeah, yeah, it's a funny Like most Asimov stories, you probably don't want to. (laughs) But she was like, no one even knew she was black until she was in Dark Matter, right? And um, and you said, well, yeah. I was just saying, jumping ahead to one that isn't even out yet, um, because we were talking a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we were talking to Ogena Choya Pecky. Uh, about the forthcoming African science fiction, I guess that you and he are working on together. And Zelda Africa Knight. Risen. Uh, uh, Africa Risen, yes. Yeah, this and Zelda Knight. There's three, three at co-editor. Yeah. But yeah. his year's best African science fiction. By the way, congratulations on having three stories in Ogenichoe's anthology. Yeah, that was surprise. I was like, yes. But it sounded to me like in Nigeria, he still feels very much on his own. Um. I think the writing community um, outside the U.S. is very different than, you know, what we're mm. used to. I know that even um, right after Dark Matter came out, I was invited by the uh, pen writers, African writers mm-hmm. in, um, in England to go. And I had a great time, but it's a very small, com- a very small community. Yeah, I gather. I mean, yeah. and it's yeah. taken them, it's what, 23 years to come up with a collection of their own work. I published some Black Brit writers in the in dark matter um but now there's a new volume of their work coming out but it's been a hard it's been a hard slog in in terms of building community and getting publishers to be on board with work that is overtly discussed as science fiction and fantasy and not just kind of a little wink wink of you know uh of it and um i can't speak about the um particular nigerian publishing experience i have been published by african publishers before and it is very very different yeah so i can understand why someone might want to why they will need to publish elsewhere because it's not the same kind of thing sure yeah well actually the sense that i came since i came away talking uh came came away with talking to don to uh, was that the recent attention to particularly African science fiction or speculative fiction uh, or uh, speculative fiction from the the African diaspora is actually, uh, from his perspective at least, very fragile and very new and very, you know, requiring a lot of support and energy should it, in case it should dissipate. Is it your sense, you know, so what what, what is your sense? I mean, the science fiction community, which you're now integrally a part of, uh, has been making a lot of its own sense of inclusiveness over the past 10 years, and particularly the last five, do you feel it, that uh, Ognachavwe has the right of it and it is is a very fragile thing still? Or do you think that at least in the North American experience, it, you know, it's now on a much more firm footing? I think it's a, it's a, it's a growing thing. I think that we could name maybe one writer, right? <laughs> mm. um, um, two decades ago that was actively publishing 
you know, as I would say, overtly science fiction work. Sure. But she was in the diaspora. So it's a very different experience if you're sitting in Canada, you're sitting in New York, you're in Boston, sure. you're in, you know, you know, I will just say this. Um, we're, we're, we're publishing um, this wonderful collection and I've been publishing more, um, continuing Charlie's uh, great tradition and to publishing more African writers in FNSF, but we have to figure out how to pay them if they're yeah, in the continent yeah. right. of Africa. And the if basic you, infrastructure, I'm yeah. thinking something as large as like huge school book, textbook publishers of the United States of America haven't figured out how to publish African writers on the continent. <laughs> Um, then yeah, we're in a new, we're in the, the birth of the, of the, of it, right? Because those kinds of things would have been fixed, would, would have been worked out already. And what Zelda, um, OG and I had to figure out was how are we going to pay all these writers, yeah. you know, in these different countries, because they're not, they can't all take PayPal. They're not getting VMO. They don't have addresses that are reliable where they can get checks and yeah. how they're going to catch them. And it's just a whole bunch of other things. Thank goodness. Um, Christopher O'Higgins, um, um, my agent at Scribe, and 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 Jeff Ryman, <laughs> yeah. who you know, you know, founded the you know the Nomo Society, you know, the Nomo Awards, and the African Speculative um, Fiction Writers Society, you know, and other wonderful other writers who were willing to help navigate that process to accept funding on behalf of other people and then get it to them, right? Yeah. Um, that shouldn't be the case. But that's because we're in the begin we're in the point where we are publishing more writers from the actual continent who are African. We are having to do that kind of logistics planning and sorting out. Um, hopefully five years from now, this will not be um, an issue. But it does have an impact on how you publish, how many people you're gonna publish, if you're gonna have to figure out how many extra fees you gotta pay to just to get them there. They're regular. And you're dealing you with know. probably yeah, 20. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. People still think of African science fiction as monolithic, but you're dealing with 20 different countries and 20 different sets of rules. You're dealing with 50. 50 okay, <laughs> yeah, 50, 54, 50, I think, different countries. 54, yeah. or any, I forget what they call the, um, in a, in a, in a uh, territory, right? Yeah. Um, um, if you want to, if you want to be accurate about it, and and they're not all in, um, they're not all in the same, you know, position. In right. terms of, of how to get published and where, and the fact that you have the Arthur C. Clarke Award and you can mm. get Booker, you know, uh, Marlon James got the Booker Prize and for yeah. speculative novel and all these other things, and we, you know, of course Octavia E. Butler and and, and later N. K. Jemison are, are you know are the pioneers in terms of getting the MacArthur uh, Fellowship and and those kinds of things for science fiction for the science fiction community. Um, now there are people who are more interested. I will say this, and and people don't like to hear, but I'm I'm I, I don't care. I'm going to tell the truth. It wasn't it wasn't as if there were African writers who were lining up, running over, trying to be published in a science fiction publication. Yeah. Back then, they were not interested. A lot of them were not. They would not call their work, even if it was speculative. They wouldn't call it that. Um, and think about it. You're not necessarily going to get selected for the Heinemann Prize when it was going on. It's not going to be necessarily, th you know, thought of yeah. as, you know, solid enough for a cane, a cane prize or what have you. Um, it wasn't, um, didn't seem pragmatic. 
they not that they didn't want to write it, but it just didn't seem practical for the same reasons that people who are in some of the MFA programs back then sure. were being discouraged from publishing genre work. So. And that's not that's not limited to African countries because one of the things no, I've been no, reading no. a lot. I'm just saying, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of international anthologies I've been reading, and you, you see the same story over and over again in India and in Pakistan and South Korea and Israel, that if you want to be taken seriously as a writer, you try to write quote unquote literary fiction. It's like mm -hmm. a thing that's uh, actually... I'm trying to remember who said this to me years ago, that if you were a black male writer from an urban area in the United States, you were supposed to write black, urban, gritty, realistic fiction and not speculative fiction. In other words, everybody's being shoved into a box somewhere. Mm -hmm. And the literary box in most countries still doesn't include science fiction and fantasy. Yeah, I think that's changing, though. I think it that's is. changing. It is. All these amazing books are, that people are writing, beautiful, heartbreaking books, inspiring books. Um, they're doing, and and I didn't, when I talk about um, science fiction for if especially an audience that isn't necessarily like versed in it, and they don't mm -hmm. like maybe they stopped reading when they were teenagers or something like that, right? So their their um, knowledge of it is very limited to their childhood. And I'll just say, you know, it's it ask the questions that all writers ask, what if? But it's just the answers are not limited by what we say is reality. The well, answers I'm, are limited I'm, by our imaginations, right? right? I'm, I'm kind of haunted. I was, I was haunted for years by uh, a statement because Walter Mosley wrote the afterword to uh, Dark Matter. And a statement, he just a flat out prediction. He said, I predict that in the next five years, there will be an explosion of science fiction in the black community. And that was, what, 21 years ago? Was he right or was he a little premature on that? Because it seems to be he happening now. He was right. He was right. Okay. But the, thing that I, the thing that I tell, I, I, I love talking with like Mark Derry and others who are like cultural critics who are observing this work from, you know, from the outside, right? He did this amazing interview with, with Samuel, Samuel Delaney and, and the cultural critic Greg Tate and the scholar Tricia Rose, right? Called, you know, um, Black to the Future, right? And I'm saying if you're looking at just the big five at that time to mm. see who's doing science fiction, baby, you're missing most of the work. It's not anything for black culture. I can't speak for anyone else's culture, but our culture, our innovation happens in the underground. Our innovation and creativity happens outside of the mainstream. It's on the margin. And unless you're out there in the margins looking for it, you're getting the... You're getting the work that you that the that the mainstream has curated and decided is the thing. That's not necessarily the thing. Um, so while you're doing the interview, you miss about six different living black writers who have been writing science fiction regularly. But because they were published by small presses, you didn't have that conversation sure. um, or they didn't have the legitimacy in, in the eyes. I won't put words in that. I don't absolutely don't think Mark believed that he just didn't know. And he'd asked. Octavia um, E. Butler, I believe, and she had declined at that time. So he he had who he had to have the conversation with. But there were other people that he absolutely could have had a conversation with. So yes, there isn't. It isn't as if all of these um, independent presses and um, authors who were out self publishing, being self published. I know because they were being rejected by the big five. <laughs> um, <laughs> And they went on and published their own work and built huge audiences and then went back and got contracts later. So it did happen. It was happening. Uh, Walter Mosley wanted to publish science fiction in the first place. Oh, before he yeah. started the mysteries? Absolutely. Go I did not know that. Yes. And he he said he couldn't get anyone to, to publish it. So he started writing mysteries instead. Of course, we know the story of that. Um, you know, pre former President Bill Clinton 
you know, said that yeah. was one of his favorite writers right, and the rest became into. history at that point. And then he could publish what he wanted, um, which there was, was one really good Easy Rollins movie too, um, Devil with a Blue Dress. But anyway, that could have yeah, been I another, mean, I, those are really good mysteries. I'm not, I don't want to put down his mysteries because he no, wanted to write science fiction. Great, but I'm just saying his heart, if he, his yeah. heart was in science yeah. fiction, that's what he wanted to publish. But like we were talking about the, the genre boxes and the identity boxes that you get placed in. Um, sometimes, uh, and also the whole, I don't know how to market it. You know, I don't know if we don't know what audience yeah, um, will we'll find this work appealing. Um, it's the bane of everyone's existence <laughs> out there. <laughs> <laughs> that conversation. Um, and I don't think people have to be murdered and there should be protests on the streets and things burning for you to decide as an industry, oh, we got to publish more of these voices, you know, because um, they have been there all along. Right. Um, and I just think about um, Jemison's story. Jemison, you know, uh, Nora had um, had written, you know, several novels and was just waiting on finding that right editor who saw something powerful and special in what she was doing and gave her a shot. So it's no coincidence that when she did get a chance to go through that door, maybe she was ready because <laughs> she had been yeah. ready. <laughs> I think it's a common story. That's, that's pretty much Nisi's story also, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Um, but just to get back to the magazine, because you're talking about boxes, I want to talk about a different kind of boxes. Because uh -huh. one of the things back in the beginning, FNSF was different from the other magazines in that it had fantasy in the title. Uh, it had a lot of literary fiction. I first read Shirley Jackson and, and Borges and people like that in FNSF. And I remember reading some really scary stories in it as well. So it, of all the science fiction magazines, seemed to always have a mix of science fiction, fantasy, and some horror. And how do you manage that mix? Oh, um, we're still doing that. I mean, um, we still have that mixture on there. Um, it's, it's certain kinds of storytelling I'm looking for. And this year has been a great chance to be able to, one, get a sense of what kinds of stories writers think are important that they want to have out in the world, which stories they think are fun, which ones they think are, you know, are weird and unusual. Sometimes what they think is a novel is not actually <laughs> the case. So, you know, we, we have, we have that little conversation together, but um, it's been really cool. Like the, the, the range of people's imaginations is never going to stop surprising me. People come up yeah. with some amazing things and that is an actual uh, fun experience. I do love reading the work. That's the fun part. Um, but for me, I'm a natural horror fan, so um, I think the horror community slowly finding out that they can find a home in the pages. Um, they may always have, but um, I really do enjoy um, horror. And the science fiction and fantasy work that I'm looking for um, is just really fresh takes on old concepts or original things that no one's thought of. But also, but mainly, it's well written. That's the that's mm. the main thing. Um, I've read a lot of stories that have very good, promising ideas, right? And, you know, um, any editor of the magazine could tell you the same thing, but it's just there's nothing about the telling of the story that makes me want to just keep reading or it's nothing that makes me, when I, if I make it to the end of the story, makes me remember it afterwards. I want the stories that, like, once I've gone through that portal that has hundreds and hundreds of stories just waiting to be read um, with my readers, I've read it. I go out, go downstairs, check my mail, go walk down to Bill Street or go to the, you know, Army Navy Park, you know, behind my building or wherever I'm going. And I can still think, I can still remember your story. I know your character. 
if yeah. I had to tell my mom, hey, I read this cool <laughs> story today, I could tell her what happened. We could be, we could go, wow. You know, if I can't remember your story after I read it, it's not the one for FNSF. And yeah. that doesn't mean it doesn't have a home somewhere that another uh, sure. fine editor or another great publication or fine, you know, place will publish it doesn't mean it's not a good story. It just means it's not one that's going to stand out for, yeah. for FNSF. So I'm looking for storytelling, writing, action, vivid, yeah. you know, yeah, you know, yeah. well-drawn characters, all that good stuff. Jack Dan once described FNSF to me as the New Yorker of science fiction, which I always felt was particularly apt in many ways. And I'm kind mm -hmm. of curious, before you picked up the, the cudgel to edit FNSF yourself, what was your impression of the magazine at that time? Because I assume it was around... 2019 or early 2020 when Gordon talked to you about it up to that point what was your perception of it um my perception of it it was still a fine magazine but it had like the same kind of stories I didn't ever feel like I was going to get super surprised mm, um, reading yeah. it. um and I felt like I you know I, you know it's going to be some of the same names um and not that those names aren't great it was great you know good names sure. you know but it's the same it's it's if I were looking for some new kind of um, story that maybe captured the spirit of now, I wouldn't look to FNSF first necessarily. Um, and I'm sure I missed some some great stories in there, um, but it's not the first place that I think I was thinking of necessarily. Yeah. There are other places that I will look at, um, and also because and this and this is not a fair thing, but also it's a print magazine, so sure. you you can't go on online and click on it and immediately read a story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to have all, you have to go and purchase it, whereas a lot of publications you can just click. Boom. There it is. The sure. author has it in their, in their yeah. bio. <laughs> Read my story. Here it is. You know, <laughs> I mean, sometimes the most unexpected story in a magazine is the one that lasts longer. I mean, one of the things that I think few people remember now is that FNSF, yes, it had its almost austere literary reputation, but it's also the magazine that serialized Starship Troopers. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it had that side of, of just doing something that nobody expected from, from it. And I think some of the classic stories have, have that impact. And I, I do the same kind of test that you were talking about. Do, do I remember a story? And I'm, I'm curious, Jonathan, if you're the same way, because I mean, I don't read all the magazines, but I do read years, best anthologies. I read a lot of original anthologies and I have this little exercise six months later, if I look at a table of contents, which of those stories leap out at me vividly? And which do I have to flip through to find out what it was really about? In other mm. words, uh, sometimes yeah. a story just sticks with you. I mean, the, uh, yeah. the, to, to me, the most disturbing. Uh, here, here's a good example. I mean, um, the classic Octavia Butler story is um, okay. This it's 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 one about the alien and the pregnant man story. I'm blanking on the title right now. Um, but speech sounds is to me the scariest story of hers. Mm. It just it's just really frightening because. I can see getting on a bus and finding people that are inarticulate. I, I almost do it now. Uh, so, so there's a sense in which uh, the story, which becomes the classic story, isn't the one that you find yourself remembering so vividly. Mm, I just feel like each editor, no matter what publication that they yeah. are 
reading for. They're looking for the the stories and the writing that had a visceral impact on them in some kind of way. And that's yeah, going to be different for each editor. And it's going to be different for readers um, as well. And I feel like the FNSF has launched ships as well. We always reach back to the most famous names, right? We go back to you know, Heinlein or whomever, right? We go back to Stephen King. Mm, um, but there have power. been more recent people as well. And so we just hope to continue. And I, and my goal also is to create space for new writers. I don't want people yeah. to look at our masthead and think, oh, I have to have been publishing for 40 years to get yeah. in this publication. Or I have to have had already six new, you know, Hugo nominations and nebulas and da-da-da-da-da. That this is actually a place where really strong writers who may not have that publishing, that huge award-winning background yet, can build an audience in this short story magazine and poetry, poetry with the amazing columns that we have as well, um, and some of the art, some of the art, and began to build an audience that is just as excited about them 20 years from now as anyone ever was reading some of the classics that we can say today, right? One one of my favorite examples, again, from from FNSF is that Mm -hmm. when when Daniel Keyes published Flowers for Algernon, basically Mm -hmm. nobody knew who Daniel Keyes was. And that, and since then, one story, everybody knows who Daniel Keyes is. Everyone knows this in sure, sure. all high schools. Not maybe not, not yeah. in Texas, maybe, but all over the place, right? And yeah, um, and, and adapted, and it's a part of the culture. It's a part of our cultural memory, you know? So who are going to be the new voices that are going to be a part of our cultural exactly. memory? Exactly. Right? Good question. Um, so I want to publish some of the things that the magazine is known for and that people love. And they can say, when I was 15 years old... I read my dad's issues or I started, you know, I became, I've been a subscriber since then. And now I'm in my sixties or my seventies or whatever. You got to have new contemporary work. If you want to have people saying that 60 years from now, right. And you're not going to have that. If I'm only publishing the things that the magazine has always been known for, I have got to also Mm -hmm. have space for work that represents the world that we live in today. That is imagining what the world might be tomorrow based on where we are today and not based on what it was in the 50s or the 40s. Well, actually, or the that, <laughs> that really touches on or connects something that I really wanted to talk about, which which is which you've partly pre-answered, and that is there was a long period of about 15 years where FNSF becomes very stable, if you like, very settled, and you know, you know, as you've sort of alluded to, maybe a little unsurprising. And now you've had five issues of the magazine that you've edited come out. It's starting to change. How important is it to you to till that field, to make it something fresher and newer again? Because it feels to me that the the FNSF that I encountered, which you know, which was originally in the 1980s and is probably 20 years after Gary first encountered himself, became a much more settled and predictable thing. And that it's really important for it and for readers for it to be different to that, to be the thing it was, fresh and different all the time. How important is that for you? It's very important because I don't want to be bored. Yeah. <laughs> I'm spending a great deal of time. They claim it's a part-time job. This is not a part-time job. No. <laughs> no. Um, uh, this is not a part-time job. But um, it is like all-consuming in terms of yeah. thinking about the work, not even just the, the wonderful writers that I do have an opportunity to publish and it's try to take care of them well and everything and work with this. Uh, first of all, we have an amazing uh, production team. Is just uh, uh, I, I really admire and adore them. They are great. 
um, and have been wonderful, like um, helping me, you know, get, you know, into the driving seat of this magazine. But I want to be surprised, too. And if I'm yeah. not surprised, what I mean, how can I expect my readers to be? Um, sure, sure. So there it has to be a balance of these things. And that's a delicate dance. It really is. It, it, it really is a delicate dance. Um, I, I, and I will say this. Uh, I got a, a message from a reader who wanted to count how many stories that had not a trans character. I forget which character that bothered him. Um, but something something on the LGBTQ community, mm. right? Let me tell you, this magazine has been out since. <laughs> my, my response is, you go back and tell me yeah. how many cisgender het stories have been published <laughs> in the 72, 72. And if that number <laughs> is less than the number of the other stories, then I will send you a cookie. But until then, don't have, don't have a seat. Have all of the seat. Because <laughs> you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. And you are in a in the 21st century, sir. You're in the 21st century. Join us. We are here. Um, and, and the science fiction and fantasy um, magazine, I expect more openness. Um, yeah. so, so there is that. But yeah, it's, it's, so it is a delicate dance um, to, to try to, um, to, to find it because everybody's looking for the new. We're all, mm-hmm. we're all um, you know, hunting down some of the same talent in sure, some yeah. sense. Um, some of the same recognized talent, but also look, looking for the new, right? We're looking for the new. Always. Um, and and that's and that's why people choose to be editors because if you're not into that that challenge and that struggle, you <laughs> not for the money. Certainly not for the money. Well, is there something that is is there something that is a quintessential essence of an SNF FNSF story, regardless, or is it? The fact that a space in which it exists is it a sense of actually innovation and quality literature, quality writing, as opposed to being a particular mm. thing. Oh, I feel like Gordon could speak, you know, more 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 eloquently on what makes a specific FNSF story. I am not only reading um, the old issues that he kindly sent me, and I don't have a, a the full nineteen forty nine to the present collection. I. <laughs> I barely have room for what he did send me, but, um, you know, just to get a sense of, and also keeping in mind that that work, some of the work that was published then was original and fresh for that time period. Right. Well, yeah, and now yeah, yeah. people have incorporated into their repertoire, right. It's, you know, old hat for some of the, some of the stuff, but I think what makes it stand out for me is the writing actually yeah. um, of it and the relationship of the writer's voice to us as readers. There's a kind of, I don't know, I feel like the stories that I read, and especially in the stories that um, that I uh, was sent from from um, the last years of, of Charlie's um, editorship, some of the stories I really love, there's just a sense of like, you know, you're, you're being taken back, you're, you're being pulled out of your everyday surroundings, and I am immersed in the world of that story. Yeah. And it's yeah. really, really crystal clear and true and real, and I don't question it. The, yeah. the story because they feel, have other things sorry, working on all the levels. So, yeah. yeah. Do you feel there's a, a challenge for FNSF and for any of the print magazines, in fact, to be more of the 20, of, of the 21st century in terms of technology and availability? I mean, there's a, a, got to be a conflict, if you like, in, between having a discrete saleable 
print or digital issue and being online and in the world. How important is it for the health of the magazine to change its profile and availability? I think that it's important in the sense, like, it just depends on what's important to you. If you are super concerned about awards, which, you know, we're not necessarily super concerned about that, right? then you will find a way that everyone can get your copies of your, your issues. And if some people are really good, they send you everything that comes out, maybe a, a small group of people necessary, you know, maybe, but not the huge audience, right, of readers. Like they don't come up right after the print issue. I can't go and read every single issue of this other print magazine that was published in that, in that thing. And so that's going to, maybe they might have an impact, right? But also it's a generational thing. If you have a lot of older readers, they're not going to be online waving flags for individual stories. They're not going to be out here, you know, you know, representing for their squad. They're just going to read it and enjoy it. They oh, may yeah. send you a letter to let you know they liked it and keep it moving. There may not even be on social media. So there's that thing. There are people who love print magazines. And so they will always subscribe to the magazine because they love that experience of being able to have it in the mail. Mm-hmm. I get letters from people who say they, they, they were, it lifted their spirit to open up their mailbox and to see the new issue there. They see the, the art, you know, they're able to open it up, to flip through the pages. They're able to pass it physically to someone else that, um, you know, they think might love those stories and they add it to their collection. You know, I remember at one point um, at our, um, at the 50th anniversary of David Hardy's doing covers for the magazine, wow. I had I saw a um, an old cover he had done that I really loved. Uh, and I was like, oh, Gordon, this would be great to have the cover. And he said, it is a great cover. However, we don't repeat covers for the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realize, I didn't know that. They don't yeah, repeat anyway. 72 years and they've never repeated a cover um, because there are readers collect those covers. Each one is unique. So that was very interesting to learn that. And it just reminded me that there's some things you're not going to get online. There's some things you're not yeah, going to well, get online. Well, you you, um, you mentioned as a kid, I mean, this is I'm speaking as an older reader myself. Uh, yeah, you could you could go into Kroger's and see a copy of FNSF. You could go into a, a, a bookstore and see all the science fiction. You, very few people can do that anymore. Um, yeah. and, and you don't discover science. In other words, if you, if you want an online magazine, you start out by looking for science fiction and then find the magazine. Back in my day, young people, uh, you'd go <laughs> into a store and you'd see magazines and say, that's how I started, a magazine or a paperback, and I, that looks cool, and you buy it, and that's what hooks you. Uh, so it's, it's, I wonder how uh, the online environment can hook people to science fiction the way we were all hooked when we were Buying, I mean, buying online can, if the online experience creates community, and that's the thing that we're facing. Like it's been, it's been a year of transition for us, obviously, but it's it's also been a challenging year. Um, not only with um, the USPS, the, you know, mail delays. Well, yeah. Which if you're, you know, we have a digital um, version of our um, of of the magazine. Of course, you can get you know waitlist books or you oh, can yeah, get the Kindle yeah, sure. and what have you, but. If you're looking for your, you're, you're waiting on your print and there's like, you know, <laughs> you know, delays happening because, you know, the Panadol Canal is blocked or whatever is, <laughs> or because, you know, DeJoy, which I'm like, go, don't write me a letter, go write Master <laughs> 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 General of the Nation yeah, right. and tell him, sir, <laughs> we it's know a, you have investments, but I need my media mail to get here. It's, 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 those, are the, those are the same people who write one-star reviews on Amazon because the book <laughs> arrives three days late. Yeah. Like, like, write that to the, go to the, to right. the top of the class, sir. 
I don't have anything to do with that. But um, so that's been a challenge as well. And when you are you dealing with a print magazine, there are other um, there's just other there are other things that you have to be aware of. Um, things that I'm hoping will happen um, in the future as soon as you know other other things are other challenges are out of the way mm-hmm. and that we perhaps get back to a more stable world yeah because um, <laughs> i'm not editing in the most ideal circumstance let's just be real um um and and and, and charlie experienced that on his way out like it was you know it was very cha- it was changing quite a bit um um you know with the pandemic and everything yeah. Um, I would love to see um, the you know website uh, you know have a complete new 21st century makeover. Um, something I would love to see, but I don't know if they will ever do it. Um, um, yeah, I just want you know there's just some things that that I would love to see happening. Of course, that um, will happen when they're when they're when we're able to do it. Let's put it that of way. Course. Um, I just think some readers, some readers yeah. make naive assumptions, I'm sure, about FNSF. I mean, basically, you're editing it from Memphis. You're not going into an office in downtown Manhattan five days a no, week. No, it's, but- like, uh, it's not like it's not like um, it's not like Asimov's and Analog. We don't have Dell magazines. This is not that. Um, um, the main office is in, you know, on the East Coast, obviously, it's in um, uh, New York, New Jersey. Right. Um, but our entire yeah. team is spread across the country, and they have been for a very long time. So that isn't new. But the thing about it is that what what I would love for readers to know that I, Sheree Renee Thomas, I edit the magazine. I am not the publisher of the magazine. And the publisher um, and our uh, our chief um, bottle washer is is Gordon Van Gelder, uh, who, of course, was, you know, a wonderful editor of the magazine for many years. He handles all of the business sides of the magazine. Uh I don't handle your subscriptions. I don't handle your, your postman. I don't handle the website. I don't address um, any of the vendors. I don't deal with fulfillment. Um, I'm not building the webpage. I don't do that, baby. What I do is read your submissions (laughs) and respond and and, and correspond with the writers and create the actual content for the magazine and edit it. That's what I do. So, um, yeah. And I guess the other thing you'd have to say in that particular space is, as the editor of the magazine, you you can ask people to send you work. You can hope people will, will send you work, but you can't make people send you. You know, people always assume like, well, obviously, if I were the editor of FNSF, I would have person X in the in, in my issue. <laughs> the new editor must be a fool because they don't have person X. But but it's just not mm-hmm. something you can totally control, right? Baby, we got Nalo Hopkinson. She never published a, a story in this magazine in her entire career. I, you cannot tell me that that, that how you, that was that was so. I was so excited to receive a story by her. Yeah. Wait till you see the January February. Well, you probably have already. I've, I've seen got it, the yeah. January February issue. I mean, um, great writers that you know and love are are, are sending work now. I will say this, it's not always work that's, that we're going to publish. Yeah, so there's yeah. that. Because it's not only a disservice to to the magazine's readers, but it's a disservice to them and their legacy if it doesn't, you know, fit. And they're professionals, yeah, yeah. so they know they send their work out. You know, it, you know, it, it lands, it doesn't land. You know, so there is that um, as well. So I was just going to say, what can you tell us that you're excited about for FNSF in 2022? Because, I mean, I... I know and Gary knows how publishing works. You're already well into 2022 in your head yeah. kind of thing with this, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. 
Um, <laughs> I cannot, I, it's like you're asking me to pick like favorite babies or something. <laughs> <laughs> I love all my children. Um, and in each issue has certain things, certain strengths. And what I try to do is create a conversation with the different stories that you, uh, yeah. and, and it's not always like easy because they're like doing so many different things that's, you know, and they're different aesthetics and different settings and some are off earth and yeah. some are, you know, beyond or what have you. But there are certain things that I'm pretty, pretty hyped about. I'm not going to tell you what they are. Well, then speak about being hyped because we're getting towards the end of our hour. You do have two, at least that I know of two books coming out next year with your name on them. The first of them is coming out from Third Man Press, who, pu who published your collection, Nine Bar Blues. Nine Bar Blues yeah. And that's Trouble the Waters, Tales from the Deep Blue. What can you tell us about that? Oh, so Tales of the Water, Tales from the Deep Blue, Trouble the Waters, excuse me, is um, an anthology of short stories um, and a few poems that I co-edited with Pan Morgan and Troy L. Wiggins. Troy Wiggins, of course, yeah. is the publisher of Fire Magazine and a fellow mm -hmm. Memphian. Pan mm -hmm. Morgan, I've known her for years, amazing writer um, and composer and editor, fine, fine editor. Mm -hmm. And the stories are for people from around the world. And the theme was the element of water, right? So they yep. had to think about ah. water in some way and to write us a science fiction fantasy story or horror story, what have you, that is dealing with water. And so some of them are, of course, dealing with water gods and mythology. Others are adventures or settings that happen on the water. Some of them are exploring different forms of water. Um, it's just uh, some of them are more like environmental or, you know, you would think of climate sure. fiction. And, and um and they just it's just a lot of fun. So it's like an element, elemental collection of of our most powerful element, um, natural element that we have that we need, that we are. We are water in a lot of ways. It immediately um, makes me think of, of of the deep, of the River Solomon novel from last year. Yes, yes, so, yes. Yeah. So that's coming out in January. Later yep. in the year, you have you have a book coming out with. Ogunachovwek, Peggy, and Zelda Knight from Tor.com, which seems much mm -hmm. more of a, I mean, where Trouble the Waters feels like a classic theme anthology in the best tradition of science fiction and fantasy, Africa Risen, a new era of speculative fiction from the outside, sounds and feels like a, I'm trying to think of the right term for it, a, a purposeful anthology, a book that's out there to raise awareness and present great stories. What can you tell us about African, Africa Risen? Oh my goodness, get yourself, get your mind ready, okay? <laughs> um, if you think there is one story, you're going to be disabused of that. There isn't a single story. So these writers are all of African, are mostly of African descent or from mm -hmm. the continent of Africa in some way or from the diaspora, right? Um, so what I don't want to hear is, oh my gosh, um, I couldn't find a single theme for these stories. That's not the kind of anthology this is. Yeah, Trouble yeah, yeah. the Water is the single theme is water, right? You know, yes, and yeah, you can yeah. be creative with that. That There isn't a single theme, uh, story theme for um, Africa Risen. Um, it's it's the Africanness, the African culture, which is a part, it, it's, it's a part of it. And as we've already said, 50-something country, right? <laughs> already with multiple thousands of languages actually but if we're just going to look at some of the larger you know languages that are around the world you know some of these writers come from are francophiles you know so, i mean some of them are you know from you know 
uh, countries that are from Portugal. Some yeah. some writer, one of the writers is in Russia. I mean, they are from around the world. Um, so you're going to experience stories that take you in and out of different um, ways that stories are told. The way that they tell their stories are based on where they're from, their culture, and how they um, choose to explore their art. It isn't a single thing. So it's not a Western collection in a traditional sense. And that's what you probably want to know going in. Yeah. Just a quick question related to that. Um, African futurism versus Afrofuturism, which is a mm -hmm. big deal to Nettie. And I mm -hmm. think it's a distinction which is probably worth making. Is that one that you have in mind when you're editing uh, something like this? No, actually, I don't. Um, Nady was, um, you know, perfectly fine to be in Afrofuturism for two decades until she found something that really more accurately reflected the kind of work that she was doing. Um, so that's fine. I'm I'm not spending energy arguing with people about what they call their work. I feel like you should call your work whatever you need to call it because it's your work. And if it helps readers find it easier, if if it helps them understand what perhaps the focus is, then then all, all be it. I will say this, that African futurism was conceived um, by other writers as well. And the term actually has been was predated what um, yeah. Nady was talking about um, by, by an actual African woman writer on the continent of Africa, who is also a visual artist. Um, so, and I feel like if we're gonna talk about African futurism, then you need to be respectful and honor that oh, okay. as well. Um, because she did more than write a blog and discuss it. She actually wrote an entire scholarly work examining it, um, African futurism and what it meant to her, which points out to the ideal that people are going to describe their work in the ways that make sense for them. It's and like that it's, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like magic realism was actually first used, I think, by German expressionist painters in the twenties or something, uh, and sort of retroactively applied to a whole batch of what was mostly Latin American literature. But but it, no, you're right. I think the phrase it came is, out of Cuba. I think it came out of Cuba. Um, Aleo Carpentier used the marvelous in the literary sense. In the literary sense, yeah, but there was a yeah, in the literary visual sense, arts movement also. The work that he was doing on 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 um, on the Haitian independence right. movement, okay. and so he didn't want to use traditional historical techniques because he felt like it left out their actual spiritual impetus for having the courage to rise up against the French. It was actually Vaudouin that inspired them. So he used the term the marvelous real to to balance that. That's where it comes from. But um, in terms of literary sense, and then later, of course, Gabrielle and others, you know, um, their work was being Used discussed as that. Right. But it starts in Cuba and Haiti um, for literature. That's great to know. Yeah. So, But that's the kind of thing. I feel like you, if we're going to be having these kind of spirited and lively conversations about it, be accurate and know all the things so that you can um, you can center your work where it needs to be centered. Um, yeah. Especially if we're talking about other black women writers, like, you know, acknowledge that work that was done. Well, also, I mean, the, the impression I get looking at uh, the year's best African speculative fiction uh, is that uh, there's, there's, there may be a sense perhaps that discussing African futurism and Afrofuturism really isn't as important or relevant. It's like a side issue to presenting great work from writers from Africa and the African diaspora. Mm -hmm. It seems like it feels like a side issue to me compared to the main issue of finding, locating, seeing, and presenting that kind of work. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Um, 
it's not an issue because like I said, a lo- I mean, part of the work that we're doing, part of this journey, I mean, even though it's around the world, the, the publishing of this work and the heart of it, the, you know, the Afrofuturism or whatever you want to call it, is happening. It happened in, in America. It happened in Black America. Mm. That is where it is. That's where people were looking. That's where that's the community that built up an audience for it. That's the community that's been out here struggling the, the longest to try to get the work visible. Um, that's why the introduction to Dark Matter was called Looking for the Invisible. Um, and that's where other communities, you know, dove in and began to have a sense that they could, too could write the work or to get it published that they have been wanting to do. Um, and also the people who were overtly discussing their work as science fiction and fantasy, um, and not just literary work that had, you know, fantastical elements or fabulous elements, you know, but they were actually intentional in writing within the genre and not being embarrassed to be, to have it discussed as such. Um, where was that happening? North America. That's where mm. it was happening. So I find it, I'm just going to say this because we're talking about it. I find it disingenuous to try to have a conversation about it and make it a territorial thing um, if you're not going to acknowledge the that that journey and that work, that 165 year at least history of it being an intentional thing that was being done. Um, um so, so let's have those conversations because it's not something that is at odds. Um, it is um, a body of work that continues to grow as a body of work that we hope to continue to nurture and celebrate and to discover um, new voices that we can help lift up so that more readers are aware of their work. Um, it would be wonderful to have uh, more support for translations. Um, one of the things that I loved about Gelada magazine, which was an online African magazine, is that they were spending energy to try to adapt, um, translate certain stories into, you know, other languages, um, you know, back and forth. And I think that's a worthy thing to do um, because there is so much um, work that has, you know, that needs some, a larger audience. So we're all here together creating and writing and growing. And it's just wonderful um, to see in this year, 2021, <laughs> we thought we would be doing so many other different things, right? But to see that at least that conversation, that invisibility conversation, is not one that we have to have anymore, right? That's at a least good sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? And <laughs> you, you deserve a good deal of congratulations for having that change come about over the last 20 years because. Hallelujah. <laughs> dark matter, I, I think of dark matter in the same sense that I think of, of, of dangerous visions, if, having made a change that people remember 20 years later. Um, not um, not the new, more or less dangerous visions, but the, you know, the, the, the <laughs> idea that there was a sea change coming about that uh, you, you know, in. in you, you could date from some of the new wave anthologies. You could date somewhat from the Dangerous Visions anthologies. I think that that sort of watershed also uh, existed with the with the Dark Matter anthologies and with what happened in the 10 years after that. Thank you. I'm very honored to hear that. Um, it's something that um, Jim Freund, um had, had said as well, and I was um, very, very um, just amazed to hear him say that because one, I, love, I loved... Um, reading Harlan Ellison's work and um, had dangerous visions and um, just actually just experienced his work, you know, in, in the Twilight Zone and all these other things, you know, he's just very, um, 
prolific, sort of, sort of like Richard Matheson. You're like you're you're watching movie, you see his name, you see the names all mm -hmm. the time, and you're just like, wow, um, to have such a, a broad and amazing career. Um, and also to know that he was, you know, one of the people that helped um, support and encourage Octavia e. Butler when she was, you know, starting out. Um, it's just a wonderful thing. I yeah, think, and she was she um, was very much people. Obviously, there are objectionable things about Harlan's personal behavior in the last ten years. But I, I talked to Octavia, and she was very open about acknowledging how important he had been to getting her into mm -hmm. what was supposed to have been the last danger, and how much he. I, I think she wanted to be a TV sitcom writer or something when she went to his screenwriting class and he started looking at her fiction and said, this is what you need to do. And I, ch I asked her that and she said, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. So I'm impressed by that. Yeah, he, he, he directed her over to the Clarion um, West workshop um, where she met Vonda McIntyre and they, you know, and, uh, and other um, great writers. And it, it definitely changed her direction, her career. And she, in turn, her writing, her legacy of work changed so many of us as readers right. and as um, educators, um, you know, forever grateful for the uh, professor who introduced me to Octavia's work in college. I read Kindred in a slavery and literature class. Yeah. Um, you know, with, uh, uh, we read The Middle Passage, a satirical novel by Charles Johnson, um, I, um, and some other work. And it's just, um, you don't know how your work is going to impact others. But, no. But, and, and, I, I do and have a parenthetical work. thing. But the reason I wanted to parenthetically mention Charles Johnson's novel, <clears throat> which, by the way, was going to be done in a stage adaptation here in Chicago, which got oh. shut down by COVID. It never happened. Oh. But, but that strikes me as one of the really important fantasy novels that no fantasy readers know about. Something I always try to mention it because it's one, it's a, it's an interesting book. It's a, um, it's a hard, it's a tough book in some ways, oh, you, yeah, know? It's... you know, the concept of, uh, of an African God being um, in chains in a hole of a ship going across the middle passage with the rest of the people that have been stolen. Um, um, but it, it, it does a lot of work. It's a very multi-layered novel. Um, I can totally see it on the stage. Um, yeah, but again, I, I'm thinking I, I, of Lorraine Hansberry's work, you know, Les Africans um, that, you know, Andrea Harrison teaches almost every, every mm -hmm. probably every year, every other year in her, uh, one of her theater, theater classes at Smith, um, also speculative novel. Um, there's just a lot of great work out there. Um, you know, and, you know, and I'm yeah. hoping, you know, with the magazine to find some more and we um, <laughs> discover some, you know, or not discover. I hate to, I don't hate, I don't know why I'm saying discover, like I'm out here being Columbus or something, but we're, we're publishing some um, wonderful writers in yeah. um, Trouble the Waters comes out in January and an Africa risen that you get to experience in the fall. So it's going to be a, <laughs> like I said, I thought it was going to be resting. Next year is going to be quite a bit. <laughs> well, well, let's see. We'll, we'll check in with you again. Thank we'll you so much. Thank you. But the, the question, the last question I wanted to ask you is this: with six issues of FNSF coming out in 2022, with Trouble of Waters and Africa Risen coming in 2022, what can we look forward to during this incredibly busy and productive time from Sharon Thomas, the writer and poet? Oh well. The things that are coming out next year, I cannot. <laughs> that's that's the best kind of announcement. <laughs> they, because now we all announce. want to know. 
two major projects I cannot announce. I'm so excited about the burst of the scenes. I cannot believe it, but um, which is why I got no rest this fall or this summer or whatever, <laughs> when I thought I was going to be able to hibernate and just like, you know, curl up with my stories, you know, with my FNSF stories. Um, no, no, no. I had to write like a crazy woman. But um, like I said, be ready when those doors open because you never know when they're going to say, yeah. come, you know, we, you know, we, we're excited to work with you. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That should be announced. One of the things I could announce before has already been announced this past week is the Carnegie Hall is having a citywide festival in New York City, this, you know, exploring Afrofuturism. So we have a wonderful, yes, yes, yeah. I'm part of a, a, a curatorial council um, with um, some great people, King King Britt and Louis um, Chudisokai and Natasha Womack and um, Ronaldo Anderson. And um, it's just been um, a lot of fun. And I cannot wait for you all to experience the great music that's coming out. Plus, there's going to be citywide programming with um, 66, I may get that number wrong, but over 60 community partners. So whatever borough you're in, you should be able to find something nearby to dip you into the world of Afrofuturism in multiple mediums. So happening, um, it's happening February and March. Sounds so I can say that. The other two projects... I, when I can announce it, I'm gonna I'm gonna email you guys, <laughs> and you're gonna uh, flip your wig. You really are, but yeah, yeah. Well, well for now, you. thank you so much for making time to talk to us today, Cherie Renee Thomas. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been delightful. We'll check in again next year, but until then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>